0: Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, is our request this morning as we continue to worship you. That, Father, you will grant us the understanding that we need so that we, Father, we may be able to comprehend and grasp the meaning of 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 our salvation what it means to be in christ what it means to belong to you what it means to have this relationship with you that you have brought about by the work of your son jesus father we would have an idea of what it means again to be brought back into this relationship to experience what adam and eve had in the beginning father we ask that you would enable us to evaluate our lives the way that we live both inwardly and outwardly. That it would be the desire of a heart to bring it in line with your word. We do thank you. we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. First, I mean, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we're gonna summarize a little bit of the things we talked about last week as we are emphasizing what Paul means to communicate when he uses the phrase in Christ. We saw from last week that that phrase, being in Christ, or being in Him, uh, is used about 160 to 165 times in the New Testament. That it's not just Paul, just kind of, just kind of his writing style, that he just mentions that we belong to Christ, and you know, it's his thing to say that we're in Christ. That he means something specific by that. When we believed in Christ Jesus as our substitutionary and fully atoning sacrifice, God then transferred you and me from the kingdom of darkness, which was in Adam, into the kingdom of light of his Son. And that's how the Bible often talks about it. So that now all believers are seen by the Father as being in Christ. This transfer is the outworking of the new covenant, his blood. It's a very important truth to remember when trying to understand this concept or the truth of being in Christ. Remember that as the Bible uses the word covenant, it is a solemn, binding agreement between two parties in which there is a co-mingling of lives and identities. So the two become one, just as a husband and wife become one new person, just as the mystical church becomes one with Christ, the church as his body of which he is the head. So we need to remember, whether you are 10 years old and you are a believer in Christ, or 20 or 30, whatever the age, the idea is for us to understand what it means to be in Him, what it means to have this relationship that when I become a Christian, I'm not just now joining a club. I'm not, I, I don't just now wear a new uniform. I don't just now have a, a new schedule to where now I know what I'm doing on Sundays. It's much more than that. It involves every aspect of life, every aspect of you as a person. It is no longer the believer who lives, but Christ who lives in the believer. We hear that in the scripture. We live in such a way that his life not only enables us, but his life shows through us. Just imagine, if you would, if every single person in our government, both local and national, what if every single person in government was a true Christian, and their approach to life was to have Jesus Christ live his life through them do you think anything would be different in our country it's not just that they would all go to church on Sunday it's not they would all just now be more moral every facet of life their attitudes their response to things the way they structure their lives and their thinking is all going to be deeply affected by that now please don't think that when I say that all I'm saying is is now all of a sudden everybody in government is going to be conservative. However you define that, that's not what we're talking about. We're going way beyond that. Way beyond that. This is not just an idea of how life would be better for all of us, though it would be. The idea is that fundamentally every essence of our lives would be different as a result of that. Because we would be convinced it's no longer our life, it is Christ who is our life. We are no longer separate branches. We are attached to the vine. We derive our life and our purpose from him. Christ is our all in all. He is the very source of and the supply of our existence, now and forever. When others see us, they should see him. I think I mentioned this before, that the word in, we say in Christ, we being in him. It's a Greek preposition, which means that we remain or we abide or we dwell. We live in Christ. Any ability we have in the Christian life to be faithful before God is not of us. In Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's because we are in Christ Jesus that is the only way you and I can be faithful or dependable. It is only as we are willing to submit and cooperate with that which is in the person that is in us, which is Christ. If you ever see anything good in me, it does not come from me. It comes from him, he who is in me and whose I am. It, come, it came from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's the same with you, if you are a believer. When you see something in you that is good, remember, it is not you. It must be Christ in you. The ability to be faithful as well as any other ability concerning our responsibilities to Christ, is an ability that comes from our being in Him and He in us. That's why we talk about living our lives in absolute dependency upon God. Why we emphasize the reading of Scripture, knowing Scripture. It's because there's this deep entanglement in living life between us and Jesus Christ. It really is all about Him transforming us to become like His Son, Jesus. What does it mean to be faithful in Christ Jesus? Well, one of the things it means is you watch the little things in your life. Sometimes faithfulness is not seen before the failure. Sometimes faithfulness is more clearly seen after the failure, when we've messed up. So let me ask you these questions. What do you do when you've messed up? Do you go around talking about other believers? Do you criticize them as if you were the standard? Do you repeat things when you don't even have the information yourself? Do you second guess others? How can you call yourself faithful in Christ Jesus? You're not. You Maybe a saint, but you're not living as God wants you to live. In Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, Paul has to instruct and exhort and encourage the Ephesian believers. Why did he have to encourage them if they were already perfect? Because they weren't. Faithfulness does not mean perfection. It is a measure of your character as a believer. Remember, once again, that everything that you have as a person, and again, we're speaking to believers, everything you and I have is in a person. His name is Jesus. If you will come to Christ and bow down to him, you will begin to experience inwardly what you've been looking for all along. The key is a repentant heart. When you're ready to bow, at that very moment, you attain access to the things that are yours in Christ Jesus because they are all available in Christ. That's why, again, we're always talking about this relationship that we have with Christ. We're not trying to build a relationship with the list of rules or laws. Even when we talk about the law of Christ, it's, it's not that I have all these duties I have to perform. I do have to perform them. But the desire to do so comes from the relationship with Christ. It's those things you want to do. Take something very simple. If I see you, let's say, in Walmart in the month of December and we're just kind of chatting and I say, what are you doing there? You don't say, well, you know, I got grandkids and you know, I, know I got that list of what does a grandparent do and one of them is buy them Christmas gifts. So that's why I'm here. And no one does that. At least I hope you don't. Normally, what the problem is is that, well, I'm actually here to return some gifts I bought for my grandkids because I overdid it and I bought too many. Because I love to do that. Right? It's your duty, but you love to do that. Right? And so the idea then is that you're doing these things just quite naturally. You want to do them because you love your grandchildren. And so the idea is when it comes to these things that God wants us to do, we do those things because we love him. The problem with most of us is that we do look for things like spiritual blessings everywhere except where they're found. And if we don't have our needs met spiritually, they're they're never going to be met anywhere else. So So keep this in mind. It is the intention of God that we who believe should always live in Christ Jesus as the very element and atmosphere of our life. One pastor put it this way, you never travel beyond the limits established by his love, established by his life, or his light. In him as the root is in the soil or as the foundation in the rock. Always in his love because never permitting in speech or act what is inconsistent with it. Always in his life because ordering our activities by the laws of his being. Sometimes you experience that when you mess up. When you're rude to an individual and immediately this conversation begins in your head. Where, where you, you know you're wrong. You know that you should not, not have acted that way. You're feeling this regret. Now you might be arguing with yourself as to whether or not you should apologize at that moment or not. And of course you feel bad maybe regretting what you've done. Maybe even loathing. I just don't know why I did that. It's just so stupid. And you just all that's great if all that's going on. Right, you want that to take place. Hopefully we get to a place to where we'll have that less often because we're not saying the wrong thing in the wrong way. But the idea is, is that that's there. You're a Christian. There's times, you know, I've confessed to you many times before the different things that happen when I drive. And I willingly do so because I do know that it happens to most of you as well. But there are times when I'm driving, you know, when someone does, just really just does something really stupid. They, they, like, they just, like they suddenly cut right in front of you and then slow down. And there's that temptation. Maybe it's because I'm in a truck. They get two inches from their bumper, or maybe an inch and a half. But all the while I'm inching closer, Bob, you're a Christian. It's there. It's there, and all that it means. And so what, I, what do I do? Much more, much more now immediately than before, take my foot off the gas, and I back up to a safe three inches. No, I, I, I back up much further than that. I, but, I, but I catch myself, because of the flesh, because of the flesh, I hate that, I back off immediately. Because it's wrong. Now that's a small thing. But all the things that we do matter. Every single one of them. Even those things. What this pastor was talking about when we live our lives and, and we, we don't travel beyond the limits that are established by his love or that are established by his life or established by his light, Think of it in these terms. Think of an individual who was raised and comes from a strong family or a strong upbringing. When they leave home, it's as if they are unable to live outside the limits that were instilled in them by loving parents. They live comfortably within the limits of wisdom that was established by mom and dad, treating others right, being generous, polite, respectful, honest, working hard, striving to learn, approaching life from a certain perspective. You, know, you can have all those things and not be a Christian, but we understand that individuals who come from what we might call a strong family, what we would consider a good thing to be a strong family. We come across individuals who they are just, just unable to do that. That's a very good thing. Right? They're, they're, and so it has to do with their identity, with their family, and all that influence, and so more so as a Christian. That's why there, there should be times that we express ourselves to other friends who are Christians when maybe they confess or you catch them or they do something and you're like, why did you just do that? You're, you're a Christian. We should just be like, what is that? Not you just know better. No, you're, you're a Christian. Why would you do that? Why are you thinking that way? Do you think that's okay? Or whatever it may happen to be. That's how we sometimes need to hold each other accountable. Is just simply doing those types of things, reminding each other of that. Now You can call it scolding, call it whatever you want. The goal isn't to embarrass each other, but there is this idea that, that, we, that we want to be helpful in that way. And that is that we are Christians. So it's not just that you don't act that way, we don't act that way. So why are you doing that? Because what it says here, and this is what's important, and there. some of these things that we're going to talk about may be uncomfortable to think about because you don't want to think about it, but this is what the scripture says. You are a new creation. Now, the reason why we need to emphasize that, maybe more so than, than before, is because of the culture that you and I have been raised in and live in, in this country. There's this idea, first of all, in society in general, you know, we've kind of expanded adolescence. We used to excuse the behavior of a 16 year old boy because he was 16. Now we excuse the behavior of a 29 year old boy, a 29 year old man, because he's still 16. We've kind of expanded irresponsibility and bad decisions and all the rest. And we see this immaturity around us in society. When it comes to the Christian life, what often happens is we're, we rejoice and we're glad when someone becomes a believer and they make that public profession of faith but we really have very little expectation that much is gonna change. Or we might even say things like, well, you know, they've only been, a, only been a believer for five years. Well, how long does it take to get that under control? Why are we saying it that way? We have very low expectation. Now, we're, we're not gonna get into where we have some kind of a list and we're gonna say, okay, well, there's, there's at least 12 things that you should be doing as a Christian by the time you've been a believer for two years, and I only see three on here. We're not going by that. At the same time, though, we're not going to eliminate any idea that there are expectations of how we are to be and what we are to be like as a Christian. Because, again, the Bible says that we are a new creation. This new creation that we are is is an expression of God's redemptive work. God has redeemed you and me. He has rescued us from the marketplace of sin in which we were bound, we were chained, we could not escape it. And we've been redeemed from that. So this is what it is not when it comes to conversion. You have not turned over a new leaf. You are not reformed, and you have not been rehabilitated. That is not what we're looking for. God does not rehabilitate you and me. He makes us a new creation. I am now one who is alive before I was dead. Now I have a relationship with Christ. Before that, I had no relationship. I am now his child. Before that, I was his enemy. I was against him. The word new here, kainos in the Greek language, means new in quality. It means that you have new desires, new feelings, new hopes, and new fears. Everyone who becomes a true Christian undergoes such a change in their views and feelings. That's why you hear, I know a lot of you, if you've been around me for a while, you hear me say this a lot. I talk about if you become, what, a true Christian. Well, if he's a real Christian. And the reason why I use those, those words to describe Christian there in that context is because too often we think of Christian like the world does, as somebody who goes to church or someone who has a casual belief in God. But what the Bible emphasizes about this being a new creation, so you are to think about yourself. Now, sometimes it can be difficult, especially if you've been a believer for 10 years or 15 or 20 years, you know, because there's no longer that contrast to what we were before. But we do need to still evaluate ourselves as to where we ought to be as believers, evaluate our attitudes, evaluate our thoughts evaluate the way that we respond to people and situations. We need to evaluate that based on what the Scripture says we are to be. The example for us is Jesus Christ. So then what is a Christian? What can we say about someone who is in Christ? It is not that he is just an unbeliever who now has a moral facelift. The differences between someone who is saved and unsaved is not merely cosmetic It must go very deep. Paul wants us to understand that Christians are not people with one or two superficial changes, but that we are new people altogether. Yes, there are those who are converted to Christ where the change is much more dramatic because of what they were doing before. But by the same token, we should recognize in all of us, in ourselves, a dramatic change in the way we view people. And this is more easily seen in how you internally view people you disagree with. How you view people who are disgusting to you. How you view people who you know don't like you, who are maybe against you, or whatever the case may happen to be. Every single one is a new creation. Everything about them is to be different. A.W. Pink says this about the new birth. He says, God exerts a quickening influence or power upon his own elect. Regeneration is very, very much more than simply shedding a few tears because of some temporary remorse over sin. It is far more than changing our course of life and leaving off bad habits and the substituting of good ones. It is something different from the mere cherishing and practicing of noble ideals, it goes infinitely deeper than coming forward to take some popular evangelist by the hand, signing a pledge card, or even joining the church. The new birth is no mere turning over a new leaf, but it is the inception and the reception of a new life. It is no mere reformation, but a radical transformation. In short, the new birth is a miracle, the result of the supernatural operation of God. So it is radical revolutionary and lasting so I think there are times and this would be, this is not a bad thing, there are times that if there's a, what we might call a lull in your growth as a believer perhaps you begin to feel if you're thinking about it wondering if you have truly become a Christian because it didn't seem to last long not that you're living in immorality all of a sudden but you know what you're like on the inside you know what kind of things you're carrying on the inside. You know what kinds of sins you're involved in, in your mind. And when when this process stops or seems to have it a lull, or whatever the case may happen to be, and you begin to doubt some things, I think that is a very healthy doubt. And we need to look at that. It's not that I'm advocating that what that means for every single one of you is that you really have never become a believer, because many of you have. But we need to recognize that we are out of sorts with who we really are. And we get back to that. At at those moments when you go through that lull, that is not the time for you to go searching for who you are because you were never lost in that sense. You know who you are. You belong to Christ. You need to begin to act that way. You're not going to change your identity. That's not going to happen. Here he tells us that the old has passed away. Paul has described some of the old things that have passed away as we have gone through this chapter so far. Does this mean that we will never have a resurgence of old prejudices or old habits or old hang-ups? No. Not as long as as we're still in the flesh and still breathing. What it does mean is that now in Christ, the general tenor of our life, the direction of our conduct, the bent of our behavior are all upward upward. Godward toward the eternal, the holy, and God glorifying. So, a simple way to evaluate your life as a believer is this Am I more holy and godly now than I was five years ago? At least that. You need to answer that honestly because remember, God knows the real answer. You're not fooling anybody. If, if you lie to yourself, what have you accomplished? Well, not much. All right, Are you now more holy and righteous and loving of God and his people than you were 10 years ago? Hopefully everybody can say, if you've been a believer longer than 10 years, that that answer is yes. Five years ago, hopefully you can all say yes. Two years ago, now, it may be that the changes in your life, if you've been a believer for a long time, are, are going to come much more slowly because many things have been put aside, thank goodness. But it, it's, there still should be that refining should still be taking place. We know this transition is not perfection. Even though we are free from the penalty of sin, we are no longer constrained to obey sin. We are nevertheless still in these corruptible bodies. We still have, whether you want to call it the sin virus or use the biblical language that we are in the flesh, we will commit sins. The difference is that before when we were in Adam, we continually, willingly chased after sin. But now that we are in Christ, we have a new power to resist the pull of sin. And now the difference is sin chases after us. What I chased now chases me. And that's how it should be. Thomas Constable says this, obviously, there is both continuity and discontinuity that takes place at conversion. Paul was not denying the continuity. We still have the same physical features, basic personality, genetic constitution, parents, susceptibility to temptation, sinful environment, etc. These things don't change. He was stressing the elements of discontinuity. Our perspectives, prejudices, misconceptions, enslavement enslavements god adds that many new things at conversion in, uh, add to our lives including the, a new spiritual life the holy spirit forgiveness the righteousness of christ as well as new viewpoints the bible says these things again the old has passed away just so you know again in the greek language that is in the aorist tense and indicative mood sometimes they call that the mood of reality and what that means is when we read that old things have passed away it signals that this passing away is actual, that it is a real historical event in the life of every believer. The old things are passed away. When did that occur in your life? The instant you confess Christ as Savior. Woe to those who would profess Christ as Savior and yet fail to exhibit any change in their lifestyle. And this is not that you exhibit a change in your lifestyle that I can see and judge. But this is what you know to be true. And in most cases, what your spouse knows to be true. Or your children. Adam Clark said, It is vain for a man to profess affinity to Christ according to the flesh while he is unchanged in his heart and life and dead in trespasses and sins. So again, we need to look at our lives. I would say that since most of us here have been raised in this country around a large number of people who are churched, and maybe you were raised in church, our inability to correctly evaluate where we are spiritually is much more difficult than it is for those who are raised, let's say, in a heathen society. Because so many around us, we look the same. So many around us, we feel the same. It's very difficult to be honest. And then, of course, we live in a day and age where somehow to be critical is to be wrong and and is to be negative. And it's not that we advocate running around being negative towards people. But think about this for a moment. Most of you know that when it comes to golf, I'm really bad at it. Several reasons, one, I don't play much which means I don't practice much. I like it. It's a hard, hard game. But I've noticed this about the guys who are like the best in the world. The best in the world. And I didn't know this till maybe several years ago when I watched a few golf tournaments. Where these guys, they're warming up before they go out there on the course for hours, swinging away. And then after they get done golfing, they go back and they start doing, this practice is unbelievable. The reason why they do that is because they're very much aware of their own imperfections. Very much aware of their own, and how easy it is to lose either being in the groove, or whatever the case may happen to be, where they need to make a slight adjustment. But they're constantly evaluating themselves. And they're not, they don't look like, I guarantee you this, no professional golfer will ever say this, well, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've looked at my game, compared to Bob Dimmitt. <laughs> I'm light years ahead of him. I wouldn't have to practice for the rest of my life and I could beat him. And we do that sometimes with our Christian life. We think about other individuals whose lives may have very obvious flaws, and we're very content where we are. That somehow, if we, got, if we slipped to be like so-and-so, an alarm would go off and we would make sure we would never got to that point. But that's not the measure that God's using for you and me. And that's not the measure that we should even want to use. Why would we ever accept that? And so we need to be very serious about this. Because again, remember there are, there are still many things Christians can do that a non-believer can mimic. A non-believer can be very faithful and come to church every Sunday and not miss. A non-believer can do that. A non-believer can live their life and be pretty honest. Maybe as honest as you and me. They can, be, they can be very polite and kind to many other people. And so what happens is, is, is that, that's the wrong area for us to go into to evaluate our lives as believers. Yes, those things are important. But we need to look at what's going on inside. And again, remember what's at stake. It's not the opinions of others. The goal is not to kind of to be an individual where everyone else says, yeah, they're a good Christian. Because none of us, are, there's no jury that decides your fate. When you die, it's one. It's a trial by judge. It's the one who knows all things about you. Everything. He knows everything that motivates you. He knows your heart inside and out. And he's the one who determines all those things. In fact, the Bible also tells us, just to reinforce what it says about being in Christ, and that the old has passed away, that the new has come. The purposes of life, the feelings of the heart, The principles of action all become new. Now, just so you know, anytime you come across anything by J.C. Ryle, you should probably read it. This is what he says. The effects of the Spirit's work in conversion will always be seen. Those effects may be weak and feeble at first. But there, where there is true conversion, some fruit will always be seen. Where no effect can be seen, There you may be sure is no grace. Where no visible fruit can be found, there you may be sure there is no true conversion. Does anyone ask me what we may expect to see in a true conversion? I reply, there will always be something seen in a converted man's character, feelings, conduct, opinions, and daily life. You will not see perfection in him. But you will see in him something peculiar, distinct, and different from other people. You will see him hating sin, loving Christ, following after holiness, taking pleasure in his Bible, persevering in prayer. You will see him penitent, humble, believing, temperate, charitable, truthful, good-tempered, patient, upright, honorable, and kind. These, at any rate, will be his aims. These are the things which he will follow after, however short he may come of perfection. In some converted people, you will see these things more distinctly and in others less. But this only I say, wherever there is conversion, something of this kind will be seen. So I'm not giving you a a list of 26 things that if you get 18 of them, you can be assured that you know the Lord. That list doesn't exist. But the things that we've talked about today are things that you and I are normally very much well aware of in our own lives. We know where our weaknesses lie. There are those who love reading their Bible every day. But there are some people they have a a distaste for and they, they may not treat them that way because they don't even come across them too often, but it's here, or it's in their heart. But there are others who may be able to treat others really, really well and just never make time for the Bible, as if they don't need it. We have our weaknesses in different areas. There is no, again, rule of how much time you should spend reading the Scripture and how often you should do kind things for others. The bottom line is is that we need to recognize what it means to be in Christ and evaluate our lives as Christians. Do I live my life and act as if I am in Christ? True conversion, and this is, if you think about it, just this phrase, it's very, it can be very disturbing. True conversion is a thing that can always be seen. I'll be honest, sometimes I don't like that. Because that may not be true of me. When others see me, do they see Christ? I know for a fact there are times they don't. They might not even know what they're looking at. But the idea is is that being a Christian, being a a true convert of Jesus Christ, something in you can be seen. Now, it may not be recognized by non-believers. They may not even be able to list it. That doesn't matter. That part doesn't matter. What matters is does God see it? The great news, which we will not cover today, but next week, is the first few words of verse 18. In speaking of that, it says, all this is from God. That is the work of God in you and in me. So we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, am I aware of the work of God in me? If I am not, then that is a red flag. You may may not know Christ. You may know about Christ, but you don't know him. You might believe he existed, but you've not trusted in him. You've not entrusted to him your life. You've not put all of your trust in him concerning all things. We need to think on these things this is what a Christian does, is this. We may see only a a minor glimpse of the work of God. If you do, you should rejoice. And with wholehearted devotion, ask God to wholeheartedly continue that work and ask him to help you to be as cooperative as you can. And you should desire that and long for that. If you do not see that, You then should ask for the help of those that you are the closest to. And ask them, do they see what you see? Ask them to be honest with you. Do not get upset with what they say. But make sure you ask those who have a willingness to be honest and not just say something because they want you to feel better. But it's not that you're looking for someone just to be critical. You want an honest evaluation. Even then, the answer may not come in an obvious form pray ask God to reveal to you where you are ask him how will he reveal that to you I don't know but he will do that and if you do not know Christ don't be so proud as to say that I cannot come to Christ now what would others think of me they have been thinking for 20 years that I'm a Christian some may talk about you badly. They don't matter. The majority of us will rejoice with the angels in heaven over each one who comes to Christ, regardless of when they come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, we know there are some, there's some pretty uncomfortable things in the Bible And we think, Lord, I think, Lord, that the most uncomfortable are those things that take an open, honest, deep look inside of us. We have a bubble. We like to maintain that bubble. The reputation of what we think others think about us, how we want to appear to others, what we want others to think that we're like. Father, we pray that you would rid us of that. Pray, Lord, that we would desire to be genuine in every way, that we would want to hear the truth about ourselves. Not, Lord, that we can be encouraged in the sense and pat ourselves on the back, never that, but that we we may rejoice in the great work of God that may be occurring in us, but also to seek your help if it appears that the work of God in us is minimal. But also, Lord, that we may then be that individual that as we walk in, in the integrity of our heart towards you, because we honestly evaluate our lives in light of what the Scripture says, and because we are living as if we are truly in Christ, that we will then be individuals of great spiritual power, and that we will have an influence on those who do not know Christ, an influence to encourage those who do know Christ, that our lives may count for a great deal. The Father, our joy may be deepened, and that our cup may overflow, And that our heart of gratitude will continue to increase until the day that we're with you. Father, we ask that you would with great mercy draw those who do not know you to you in Christ. And Father, for those of us who know you, whether we are those who are struggling greatly or those who perhaps may have much to rejoice for, we pray, Lord, that we would give you all the glory and the credit and that we would speak well of you and that we would live in the joy that you give us. Thank you, Father, for your word. Give to us strength and courage. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.